Listener Production. Katrina Blowers, they say that anyone can do a podcast. <laughs> Pretty much anyone with a microphone and a computer can. Christopher Pines had one. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. That's cool. Barack uh, Obama. Obama, yeah, yeah. And now someone who I guess I never thought would have a podcast, Malcolm Turnbull. We cast our mind back to when, you know, we first met at the Oxford Union debating each other in the you know, 1970s, late 1970s. I wish you hadn't given the date, Malcolm. That oh, well, oh, there, there you go. Sorry, all right, I, I apologise for that. Yes, it was just, well, at least it's not the 1870s. <laughs> So that is Malcolm Turnbull in his new podcast. He's talking to the former British Prime Minister, Theresa May, there. Obviously, they, they've known each other for a while. <laughs> Old debating partners. His podcast is called Defending Democracy. He speaks to some really interesting people, including yeah. a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Maria Ressa. How wonderful to have role reversal. You know, I would be chasing you for an interview. These are some really interesting conversations. The former PM goes pretty deep on some of the biggest questions of our times. We're going to talk to Malcolm Turnbull in this episode and ask him why, of all the things that he could do with his life right now, after politics, I mean, he's got a lot of money. He doesn't really need the cash for this one. Why would he do a podcast? He cannot help himself. Um, (laughs) We have got a really interesting and at times, funny conversation with yeah. Malcolm Turnbull coming up for you in this episode and tomorrow's episode. So two parts with Malcolm Turnbull. It's a really good interview. First, here are the big news stories of today. It is Monday, the 3rd of April. Here's the news with Eleanor Harrison Dengue and Jan Fran. Happy Monday, everybody. Well, it's not a very happy Monday for the Coalition because if the Aston by-election results were not bad enough... For the party, the latest news poll might just be, uh, published last night, it shows the Coalition's primary vote has dropped to just 33%. That is its lowest point since September last year. Labor is currently sitting in a primary vote of 38%. This is according to the poll, which was commissioned for the Australian newspaper. Mm, Yeah, Jan, and it's even worse news for Peter Dutton, the leader. Anthony Albanese is now well ahead as preferred Prime Minister, 58 to just 26% for Dutton. Mm, 58, 26%. That's a very big gulf there. Uh, Peter Dutton's probably scratching his head wondering what's happened in the, well, what was once the blue ribbon seat of Aston. This is in Victoria. It was a seat held by Alan Tudge. It was won by Mary Doyle um, from the Labor Party. The first time in 100 years that a sitting government has won a seat from the opposition in a by-election. So talking about some headaches there for Peter Dutton, he's previously said that the by-election was going to be a verdict on the party's leaders, which he is the leader of the Liberal Party, Um, and he was asked point blank if he should continue to lead the coalition after the loss. He had this to say. Uh, Of course I should, and uh, I can tell you it makes me more determined to rebuild this party and to be in a winning position by 2025. That was Peter Dutton on Insiders there. And if you look at a map of Victoria, particularly metropolitan Melbourne, so they're the sort of city seats in Melbourne, it is a very big wave of red. Victoria's Premier Daniel Andrews has spoken about his trip to China last week. The message that we sent was that Victoria values our relationship, our partnership, uh, and, and we want to see that grow. That's the message that we sent, and uh, I think we were very warmly, very warmly received because I think people in China know and understand. 
So he was heavily criticised when he went for not taking any media with him. Uh, He spent four days there on a trade, education and tourism mission, which included establishing apparently working groups to attract more Chinese students to Melbourne and offer post-grad exchange programs. Yeah, so there's a a couple of um, question marks here over that trip. As you say, he has been accused of being secretive. So he flew to China um, this was last week on Monday, mm. which is less than two days after his visit was announced. Uh, there was no press that was taken with him. And the opposition leader is sort of pointing to the fact that the WA Premier has an upcoming trip to China planned as well, but he's given notice well ahead of time and he's allowing the media to attend. Dan Andrews seemed to sort of brush this off and say, look, we've had visits before where the media hasn't, you know, been front and centre or hasn't attended But this is the first time that he's visited China since uh, what's called the Belt and Road deal was scrapped in 2021. So this Mm. is a deal that Victoria had with the Chinese government that the Commonwealth Government of Australia sort of overrode and cancelled. It was a big deal at the time um, in 2021 and, uh, and this is the first time that Dan Andrews is heading back to China since that deal was scrapped. Mm, he also uh, has actually been called out by, I don't know, we we have mentioned this on the podcast a few times. So Chung Lei, she is an Australian journalist who's detained in China and her partner who's here in Australia uh, has said that he's really disappointed that uh, Daniel Andrews didn't advocate for her release while he was there. So she was detained in 2020. She's mm. still detained and she's still got two young children in Melbourne. Mm. Well, Dan Andrews has said that it's not his business to be raising foreign policy issues. I'm not saying that mm. I necessarily agree with that point, but he says, you know, he's not the Prime Minister, he's the Premier of Victoria, and so foreign policy is not his bag. The New South Wales Premier has vowed to never work with One Nation's Mark Latham. So the position from New South Wales Labor is unambiguous. We won't be dealing with Mark Latham, we won't be supporting him for committee chairs or assignments inside the chamber. That's the new Premier Chris Minns there. Yeah, so we brought you the story about Mark Latham's shocking um, homophobic tweet last week. This is now the fallout from that. Um, You have the leader of New South Wales essentially wanting nothing to do with Mark Latham professionally, which is, you know, it's a a real sort of sticking point because they both uh, work in the same parliament. Mm -hmm. Latham has come back saying... Sometimes in public life, you throw out insults and they come back at you harder and truer. So boo-hoo, Alex Greenwich. That's been his reply um, to the MP that he basically slandered, which just goes to show that he just doesn't seem to care that what he tweeted was absolutely abhorrent. I'm not going to repeat it, by the way, but it was uh, it was incredibly homophobic. The Pope appears to be recovering well. He celebrated Palm Sunday Mass at the Vatican a day after leaving hospital. He delivered a speech to at least 30,000 people. So the 86-year-old was admitted to hospital last week and spent three days being treated for severe bronchitis. Uh, and as he was leaving, apparently, the pontiff joked that he said, oh, I'm still alive. He was mingling with crowds and shaking hands and, you know, hugging bereaved women he was doing all of the things that you would expect of a Pope. He is 86 years old. You know, mm, he's, yeah. he's, he's not there. a spring chicken. Yeah. <laughs> he he does, you know, seem, I guess he seems fine for now. And he does say that he would consider stepping down if he became too ill, which 
somehow shouldn't sound like it's newsworthy, but it is newsworthy <laughs> because popes are really not known yep, nope. for stepping down. They cling to that position right until the very end. I think the first pope to resign in 600 years was Pope Benedict, which is the pope before Pope Francis. So, you know, if he does step down, that could could be the beginning of a trend. Could be. That's all I'm saying. And the Australian Grand Prix is go. Red Bull's Max Verstappen has claimed his 37th F1 career win at the Australian Grand Prix overnight with Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes coming in second. So the race has gone down in history as having the most red flags ever and it had to be stopped three times. The first one maybe you can you can do it, but I think that second one I, I don't really understand. So it was a bit of a mess, um, but yeah, we survived everything. We had good pace in the car today again and... Uh, we, we won, which, of course, is the most important. Verstappen there, and he was talking about the uh, red flags on Channel 10. Yeah, he, he really kind of said, I have no idea what the organisers are doing or why they would make these particular decisions. Um, for those that don't know, red, which is also me, uh, that many red flags in a race doesn't usually happen. And I think that there was a red flag that happened quite close to the end as well. Um, which, you know, threw, threw a couple of people off. There was 130,000 people in attendance this year. Record crowds. Congratulations to the F1. Um, they're probably pretty cheering about that, given that it was cancelled in 2020 and 2021 and had sort of half-heartedly rather returned in 2022, only to have this very dramatic <laughs> race happen in, in 2023. You know, all that drama seemed to happen in, you know, the last few laps of 58. There was actually a fourth red flag, but it was it happened after the finish as well. Just that seemed like such an icing on the cake. It's like, you've had three. We're going to give you another one, even though the race is finished. <laughs> All right, that is it for our headlines today. We're going to hand you back to Tom for his chat with former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Hey, Katrina Blowers here with you. So Malcolm Turnbull, of course, was the Prime Minister of Australia from 2015 to 2018. And then he was rolled by Scott Morrison. It was extraordinary. It was described as madness by many. And I think it's uh, difficult to describe it in any other way. Yeah, that was a really painful moment. Not how I imagine he wanted to end his political career. Well, madness, I mean, that's a pretty strong word there. Mm. The other thing that he describes as madness is the state of the media and how that has led to what he calls a bit of a crisis in democracy. And he's quite concerned about what's happened in other countries like the US and Brazil could even happen here in Australia. Yeah, and that's what his podcast, Defending Democracy, is all about. He's actually tanking up a role pushing for a royal commission into the Murdoch media, Mm. which is a cause that Kevin Rudd was leading until he became the US ambassador recently. I mean, maybe a conversation with Kevin Rudd will be in the next series. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of really interesting people he speaks to in this one. Check it out. But right now, we're going deep with him about his concerns about the state of democracy. But we will also challenge him on some of the positions he has held over the years, including on the voice to parliament, which he rejected at the time when he was prime minister in 2017, but now supports. Malcolm Turnbull, thank you for joining us. Now from two podcasters to another, we actually think your podcast is really good. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. I binge listened it yesterday. And so I, I listened to all six episodes. And I've got to say, at the beginning, your premise that democracy is under threat, I was really compelled by that. And you, you bring up lots of evidence for why that is the case. But I have to say that by the end of episode six, I actually believe the opposite to be true. I felt more heartened than ever that democracy is in a pretty healthy state, at least in Australia. Mm. Where did you land with all of that? I think that that's a fair conclusion. I think democracy is in a healthier state in Australia, but uh, you can't take it for granted. The same factors are at play here, but we do have the great strength of the way our voting system works, you know, compulsory voting, preferential voting, and um, not having gerrymandered electorates. Is that the main reason, do you think? Is it the electoral system or is it also the the culture of Australians? I mean, I guess we lament the tall poppy syndrome and you've probably been a victim of that, but there is maybe something in that that we, we have a way of reining in really intense outliers in our society and pulling them into line. I think that's a good point. I, I don't argue with that. I think in addition, I think the fact that we have the ABC is very important. You know, this is a very big mainstream uh, media platform that is obliged by act of parliament to be accurate in its presentation of news and objective and, you know, balanced in its presentation of commentary. You know, the United States, for example, and many uh, doesn't have that. And, of course, in many countries, the state-owned media broadcaster is uh, a vehicle for government propaganda. I mean, Russia being a good example, Mm. China being another. So I think the ABC is an important part of the mix as well. One thing I was super curious about before we get into the nitty-gritty, why did you do this? And who came up with the idea? It was my idea to pursue this issue, and I've been writing and speaking about it for quite a long time, but I have a great colleague, Lisa Main, who has also been very focused on this issue, including in the work that she did at the Judith Nielsen Institute. So both Lisa and I having the same interest in this, uh, it was natural to think about a podcast, and and this was, this was something that Lisa was able to produce. So, you know, all of the really clever stuff was done by her, I hasten to add. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is very tight. And um, I interviewed you a number of times over the years at at Triple J and they were deep, intense, even sometimes wild conversations, especially when I challenged you about the NBN many years ago when you had to sell Tony Abbott's dream. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, well, let's let's not revive that. (laughs) Look, can I just just give you a a fact point on the Mm. NBN? The yeah. approach that we took on the NBN was, you know, was a pragmatic one to try to get it built as quickly as possible uh, and at lowest cost as possible. And you know what? Because of the way we approached it, when COVID hit, virtually everybody in Australia had access to uh, high-speed broadband. And if we'd taken the fibre-to-the-premises route, you know, which was what Labor wanted, it's obviously cost a lot more, but most significantly, it would have only been about half built by the time COVID hit. You know, that wasn't part of the plan. We didn't have a <laughs> pandemic in our plan, but it was a it was a stroke of luck, really, because you can imagine where you would have been 
in that sort of work from home era, if you had half of the population on, you know, effectively on ADSL, would have been a disaster. They wouldn't have wow. been able to do this. Yeah. Interesting to hear you're still defending that. Let's <laughs> let's park, park that one there. <laughs> Where I was heading with that conversation was it is, it's a really good podcast and it captures these great moments between you and, and some people you've known for a long time, like Theresa May. We We love that moment where you're talking about debating against her um, during your time at university in the UK in the 1970s. And she seems to really recoil at that timestamp. <laughs> I think she, I think she's kidding, but, but yeah, she, yeah we, both, we both know how old we are. I'm a bit older than her, actually. And then some very thoughtful, I guess, analysis about the state of the world. And it did feel like maybe you were going back to some of your, your time as a, as a student, as a Rhodes Scholar, and, and thinking about the world in a very analytical way. Yeah, well, that's that's what it's all about, really. I I, I think pod, these are the first podcasts I've actually done myself, you know, been on uh, lots of other podcasts. I think it's a really interesting medium. You know, it, it's extraordinarily diverse. You know, there are literally millions of podcasts. It gives people the ability to basically take control of what they're listening to. If you've got an application that allows you to line up a good playlist, you can just set off for as I as I do regularly, you know, on a kayak or go for a long kayak. I might go out for two and a half hours, sometimes even longer, and uh, just queue a whole lot of interesting podcasts up, and it's fabulous. So I'm a big fan and have been for a long time of podcasting. The problem is you don't have enough hours in the day to listen to all the interesting podcasts, but that's not <laughs> there's nothing you can do about that unless you turn up the speed. So I so I'll tell you a story about this. So, so I I published a memoir a few years ago, and I read you know I read it. So there's an audio book of my book, A Bigger Picture, and it's literally 25 hours of listening, 25 hours of listening pleasure. And I always thought it could be used by the police to get people to confess, you know, <laughs> fess up, or we'll play another chapter. Okay, the audio oh, equivalent of waterboarding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so I was talking to a young guy who would have been about 30 and and he was saying he really enjoyed the book and and uh, I said, oh, really, when do you listen to it? He said, oh, I uh, listen to it when I go running. Oh, okay. I said, that's great. I said, because you must go for some long runs. Marathons. It's a big book. Yeah. And he said, no, no, he said, it's, it's fine. He said, I play you at uh, two times. <laughs> Malcolm said, Turnbull said, is a chipmunk. You must, as I said, you must be surprised to meet me and discover that I'm not a chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> Back to uh, some of the interviews that you did, and we were just talking about Theresa May, and and I guess that's that's the episode I enjoyed the most because it was like being a fly on the wall and hearing some really fascinating insights into world leaders, uh, particularly I'd love to talk about Putin. Um, Theresa May described Putin, she said, I've always found him to be a bit of a cold fish. What I'm curious about, and you you raised this question, and I'd love to know, like having thought about it a lot further throughout your podcast, do you in fact think that Putin has gone mad? Yes, I do. I cannot reconcile the very rational, cold, analytical, calculating guy I had got to know before and while I was Prime Minister to the reckless person who launched this invasion. I mean, leaving aside the criminality and brutality of it, it is, was just so misconceived. 
you know, it was such a gigantic risk. He, he has got himself bogged down into a war that could go on forever. He's, you know, had, I mean, this, this is a disaster for him, whatever, and it's a disaster for the people of Ukraine above all, disaster for the world. But I just find that, I find it very hard to reconcile that with the person I had got to know before. And I'd always found, as I said, very rational and calculating. There is another view, though, which is that he's always been a risk taker, a gambler, uh, very calculating and careful in his gambles. And this is one that just he just, you know, got it wrong, right? You can't keep on rolling the dice and getting the outcome you want. So take your pick. I mean, Emmanuel Macron, who obviously has seen a lot more of him in recent years than than, than I have. I mean, I haven't seen him since mm. I stopped being PM, but Emmanuel has said publicly that he thinks something has changed and uh, attributes it to the, I mean, he said this publicly. I mean, I'm not saying what he said to me, but he said this publicly Then he speculates that it's got something to do with the isolation of COVID. And, and you know, the problem with dictators, and you get this with, with actually bullying bosses, you know, in any environment, is that if they're there too long, they end up being surrounded by people telling them what they want to hear. One of the real difficulties in leadership is, is you've obviously got to have a strong sense of self-belief and you've got to be a strong personality. You've got to be prepared to, you've got to have, you know, courage and commitment, all those things. But at the same time, you can't allow that to intimidate others into not being prepared to tell you what they really think. Some leaders, including Australian leaders, get to the point where they, anyone with a contrary view works out that it's better just to stay quiet. And so you end up becoming misled by your own dominance, if you like, and its influence on others until, of course, you get mugged by reality, which, of course, is what happened to Putin, right? All right, Malcolm Turnbull. So we're going to stop the interview there and we're going to come back to Malcolm Turnbull tomorrow, Katrina, where it gets Mm. a little more challenging. Well, I always find it really interesting when leaders after the fact admit that they got it wrong. And he said that he definitely did when it came to his views on the Indigenous voice to Parliament. So we're going to go into that with him and what made him change his mind. That's on tomorrow's episode. Listener.